painful experiences, it can transform us. That pain is transformative. That pain is the goal. That pain is the, the gist for what we need for this journey. Hello and welcome to Daring to Tell. This is the podcast where writers read their true stories of personal daring and then we talk about it. I'm Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. It's funny that I don't really remember what cracked open the realization for me that someday my mother would die. What I do remember is that once I did realize that, I cried and cried and cried. I could not imagine my life without her. I cried a lot as a kid, too. Maybe we all do, I don't know, but I really remember begging her not to leave when she would be getting ready to go for her evening shift waitressing at Howard Johnson's after my dad was home from his job. She'd go off and do that. And I cried almost any time she would go away or I would have to go away, whether it was maybe just for a babysitter coming over or there was a time I went to go stay with my great-grandma Ruth for two weeks while she was doing a class instruction for church. So when I discovered she would someday die and be gone from me permanently, it was overwhelming. And I do recall burying my head in the crook of her neck, as I often did when she would comfort me. She would hold me and stroke my hair, reassuring me that it wouldn't be for a long, long time. And that when it did happen, it would be okay. It would be at a time when we were ready to move on. She dried my tears and I tried to believe her. She is exactly 20 years older than me. And so I placed a faraway number on the time that she might die. Maybe she would be in her 70s, which would put me in my 50s. I used to imagine her being old and wrinkly and gray, stooped perhaps. I couldn't even imagine me in my 50s at all. And of course, those faraway days have arrived. And she is still here, strong and healthy as ever, perhaps a little looser in the face, but with far less gray hair than I have. So her promise was kept. My weepiness and separation anxiety even continued into my departure for college. I was homesick for a couple of months, but then I learned I was doing okay, standing on my own two feet apart from my mother. The mother-daughter relationship is the topic that I can't get enough of. So when I received Caroline Fitzgerald's memoir chapter, I was immediately drawn in. 
Caroline Fitzgerald is a clinical hypnotherapist, and she has led such an interesting life. So interesting, in fact, that her life and character are the inspiration for the mother of Rainbow on the TV series Blackish and Mixedish, which I was super impressed by. How cool is that? She has also faced some incredible challenges. However, she has also had the courage and drive and generosity to write them down. And when I first spoke with her, I was also taken in by what a sensitive and extraordinary soul she is. This is where I will just let our conversation take over before she will read from chapter three of her memoir called, I Think I Might Die Without You. Here is Caroline Fitzgerald. Tell me a little bit more about you, about who you are right now, maybe. Okay. I am a clinical hypnotherapist. I've been practicing for about 25 years in Los Angeles. I specialize in uh, childhood trauma and helping people to change their lives for the better. I was in film editing, by the way, for 12 years and then switched over mm. to hypnosis because I wanted to contribute in a bigger way to help people to heal uh-huh. in doing film editing, which was a really good job for a single mom, by the way, uh-huh. because of the pay was so good, yep. but it did not fulfill me whatsoever, except I was part of the um, industry. And I love yep. that. I love being around the people that I work with. Well, that's so cool. I didn't even know. <laughs> I didn't know that at all about you. And so what was the film editing like? How did you get into that? Well, it's very interesting uh, because usually you have to know someone to get into the business. Yeah. And I was working at a local TV show and trying to break into the big studios. Mm -hmm. And because I was uh, African-American, I was so, and, and female, so very, very few women and people of color that were being hired at that time. Yeah. And I happened to meet someone at a party who was black, who was a sound editor and I told him my dream about going into the bigger studios. And he goes, I can help you get in. So he was my way in. He was the oh. person that I found, that the universe found me. I found yeah. him. And he. I got my first job working on a film with Sidney Poitier, his first directorial. Oh, my it, God. It, yeah, it was quite amazing. And I got a chance to really sit and talk with him because <gasps> I was an apprentice film editor. He was a director. So he was always around the editor. And I was putting film away and doing all of the stuff that the editors do, assistant editors. And we had a lovely, lovely conversation. In fact, I was just getting out of my second marriage and I was only 31, I think. And he goes, and he asked me, how old am I? I'm going, I'm only 31. He goes, are you married? I'm going, I'm ending my second marriage. He goes, girl, you better slow down. You're moving too fast. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and we just had these incredible, amazing conversations. So I went on to work with him, and then I worked with Richard Pryor on his last film and his uh, the oh film of his God. life. And I worked with Eddie Murphy, and I, oh. uh, yeah, and I was an assistant. I wasn't the editor; I was an assistant right. film editor. But I did that for twelve years. That's and I just met these amazing, amazing people. Yes. And uh, as my husband says today, he goes well, and and technically, I don't have those kinds of skills for editing, really. Mm -hmm. But they liked my personality, and I was like helping people. Everyone was yes. coming to me for their problems, so oh. they kept hiring me over and over again. Anyway, that was my story. I love that, though. That is great. You know, I always sort of had this ideation of moving into film and or video someday doing audio my whole life, and I just 
adore audio editing. I it was the thing that totally hooked me into my whole career in radio. So to hear that you were doing that, I mean, what an amazing thing to meet so many famous great people that is really special and that must have been really special to feel in a thing behind the scenes and and all that yes yeah yes yes and it was uh quite a time and i look at the situation that's happening today with black artists Mm -hmm. going into the film business it's so much more prevalent Mm -hmm. that you see black faces before there was nobody i was the only one working there it was just so few of us Yep. So I'm just really thrilled at today's young people who are out there doing it yep. in the film business. Wow. We love it. Wow. So how do you go from that to clinical hypnotherapy? I mean, I get the the helping people thing, and that feels like the common denominator. Well, I've never been a traditionist, as you could probably tell. I've always been kind of like out of the, the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And I would listen to a metaphysical radio station. And one person on the station was a hypnotherapist. I didn't know what hypnotherapy was. didn't know mm-hmm. anything about it. And I started listening to this guy, and his voice was so soothing and so beautiful. And he said the most positive things about changing your life. Mm-hmm. And I just fell in love with it. And I called him. I called the station. Oh, and wow. He, and I actually got a chance to speak to him. I'm going, how did you learn this amazing tool that you have, this, this amazing gift? How did you learn to do this? Yeah. And he goes, well, I went to school under the tutelage of a master hypnotherapist. He said he's a crusty old fool, but if you can stand his personality, he will teach you everything you need to know. And guess what? He was in my neighborhood, and I had just remarried. I got married again, my third marriage. Uh So he financed me to go to school, back to school, and I just dived in. It was just like a duck taking the water. I loved it so much ah. because it's such a spiritual experience, right. hypnosis. Right. And you're really getting into the subconscious mind where all the changes can can actually take place. And people really do change their lives. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was pretty thrilled about doing the work. And I just continued. And then I've always had the spiritual bit. I've always been a seeker. In fact, that's really what my book is about, too. Mm-hmm. But anyway... I uh, just got very, very much invested in this work. And then I took another course in spiritual counseling for four years, did that, and got a certification in that. Mm -hmm. Became like a lay minister. Mm -hmm. And I just continued on from there. And so I incorporated that with my work. And then I went on to do other work with another thing called the REI, which is Racial Equity Institute. Uh So I'm a part of that work, too. It's anti-racism work. So my journey has just gone wow. on and on and on. I I just love that. It seems like you've followed your own inclination. And I, I love that describing yourself as a seeker because you do have to pursue the thing that, I, I don't know, I'm as I think about this and as I think about the story you're going to read for us today, sometimes those things come, I think, from within us And there's a spiritual aspect of that that I think sometimes is perceived as coming from outside of us. And, you know, it seems like you've been exploring both of those from within and from without sides of things. Yes, Michelle. Well, there's a part in in the piece that I'm going to read. I say, should I reveal this? Well, let's yeah, let's not... let's not reveal okay. just yet. All right. <laughs> okay, cuz <'cause> I... <laughs> But let's but let's actually talk about the writing. So, tell me more about this memoir. I 
only learned just now, this is chapter number three in a memoir yes. that you, is the manuscript completed at this point? It's not published it's, yet. It's not published. It will be published in 2022, I'm sure. Oh, yep. Uh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Putting it out there. <laughs> Got it. Yep. I'm putting it out there. And it's a, a spiritual journey. It started with the death of my mother. And I've been a spiritual seeker for a very long time. As a little child, a little girl, I was always seeing, uh, people would say ghosts, but it was images. But I was too yeah. afraid of them. So they mm -hmm. just kind of floated away. And I was just too afraid to even admit it. And mm -hmm. uh, in the South, where in Memphis, if you were that kind of child, people thought you were kind of strange anyway. And so I kept my uh, feelings and thoughts to myself. And so, but I've always been a seeker. And then that the death of my mother, it threw me into such a despair mm -hmm. that I wanted to know, like, how could, how could one lose a mother? <laughs> yeah. Thought, how old I were you? Lose. I was 25. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, how could I lose my mother? And right. I, it sent me on an odyssey of looking for this mother love. Mm -hmm. And it got all turned around and twisted around into this other kind of love mm -hmm. that I shared with my mother, this addictive love. Mm -hmm. And this is part of the journey. Yeah. So when did you think you wanted to write this story? I've been writing all my life. I've kept a journal since I was a child and I just tried many other venues like novels and stuff. But this I thought my story is so interesting and it might help someone out there. Mm -hmm. And I, what I really wanted to do, Michelle, also was to uh, honoring myself as a black woman mm -hmm. and the stories that are not told by us. And right. I really wanted my grandchildren to have some inkling of the woman that was in their lives who would have long disappeared when their children come around. Right. But I wanted them to know that there was a woman in their life who had dreams and hopes and she was a real person because yes. I didn't didn't have that reference in my family and many black families don't so mm -hmm. this is part of why I'm doing this well I love that and the connection to our past I think is so important and I've I've done a good bit of searching myself for who my ancestors were and what I could have potentially found from them so I I love the fact that you were writing this for your grandchildren and you have grandchildren now is that correct i have seven wow seven. Oh. <laughs> and what are their age ranges right now let's see eight months to 22 years of age wow and my one one daughter has the six children so her children range from five to 22 yeah and our son just had a baby so his baby is eight months old oh. so that's the that's the seven yep. out of five. And I have five children, so. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. could be more on the way. I've, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love that. And I'm thinking about, before we do have you read, who you were in this chapter. So I heard you mention Memphis, because there's also a mention of a good Southern girl in you. Is that, did you grow up in Mem Memphis? Yes, until I was 11. Okay. So when I'm in high school, this is all taking place in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. High school was Los Angeles. Yes. Junior high was Los Angeles. So we made the great migration, uh, the Southern migration, mm -hmm. when I was 11 years old. So I started junior high 
in Los Angeles. That must have been a big move. Yes, it was. Were you excited about it, scared about it? Good question. I was looking forward to the adventure. I was. I think I was more excited about it instead yeah. of... It was, it was something... Um, I didn't look back. Hmm. We never looked back. It was something that was going forward, and it was a good thing. It was a good thing. And we're going to hear a little bit more about your family of origin, but also set up who who was in your family in birth order were you the oldest i'm the oldest girl i have an older brother okay and then there are four others after me so there were six children okay so six My kids six. yes and you were the second oldest altogether and we don't hear about your older brother was he out of the house before all this yes happened? he was okay. out of the house when this was happening and you were the oldest girl and yeah he was when, in the service when was this when is your high school time? The 60s. Okay. Other questions just about writing. You said you've kept a journal your whole life. And what is the role writing plays for you still or has played for you through your life? Well, when I got really serious about it, I started taking lots of classes. So I've been taking writing classes for probably 20 years mm -hmm. off and on. And when I finally thought I want to do my own story which is probably about 10 years ago started looking for people to help me because mm -hmm. I was still working and I needed help I needed support I needed a partner yeah. I needed uh, someone to keep me on track also so I yep. had several partners mm -hmm. and none of them worked out until I met this woman three years ago mm -hmm. and she really helped me to pull it all together and this is the product of what we have both been working wow. on and she's been a wonderful, wonderful partner and uh, so encouraging. Right. And just a lovely, lovely woman. So, What do you like best about writing? Why do you write? I write because it just pours out these feelings. I feel like, I, I mean, I have a lot of feelings. I'm a Scorpio woman with a lot of feelings. And <laughs> I, it was a great way for me to express myself. I've always needed to express in some kind of way creatively mm -hmm. and writing has given me that avenue i mean i i've been in college i because i eventually do get to college and i was in theater so i was doing plays and, mm -hmm. and directing and acting and so i've always had this creative bent and then writing was just like i couldn't get to the plays again once i left college and i just i had to write so i had to keep writing mm -hmm. it was my salvation then I got the idea, well, I have a pretty interesting story. And I really, right. like I said earlier, I really wanted my grandchildren to know something about my life and about their grandmother who came before my right. mother and right. their grandmother, yeah. their great-grandmother. Yep. And I wanted her to be known. It was important for me for people to know her. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a connection to our past and it is a voice of a, a person, you know? Yes, I enjoy talking to people about writing because I, too, have written in journals for a long time. And I guess, yeah, that was one of my other questions. Like, whenever you decided for posterity, I think, for a connection for your grandchildren and to know who you were, what life was like when you were growing up, and to know who their, their great-grandmother was because they couldn't have known her is a tremendous gift and connection to who we are and to who comes after us. 
how much did you use those journals? How did you jog your memory, I guess, from all that time? I didn't use my journals at all. I just started from memory. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has evolved because it's, like I said, working with a partner, she helped me to really focus in on what I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. So I just started writing from memory about my childhood and what happened because growing up I was always interested in theater for some or plays or something and mm -hmm. my parents were so over the top people mm -hmm. and then they would be very very quiet people very church like very middle class black people mm -hmm. and yet they were so outrageous in their behavior sometimes mm -hmm. I knew it, it I thought these people need to be on the stage always uh, I mean, because they were they it. were just that kind of those kind of people. Right. My grandmother, my mother's mother lived with us all of my life and she became like our in a way our nanny. She was mm -hmm. the cook, she was the cleaner, she did everything. She had worked for a white family in Memphis for many, many years and my mother asked her to come live with us and work for her mm -hmm. and she would pay her to help with the children because there were four of us then mm -hmm. and my mother always worked she was a secretary and she was one of the first black women hired at the um uh, what's the thing in memphis Aeros aerospace oh she was one of the few black women at that time who was wow. hired and uh -huh. she, she and she loved her job she was a first rate grade secretary uh -huh. and so she needed help right and so right. my grandmother came in and of course kind of took over the household though i mean she did like i said the cooking the cleaning i mean we had meals on the table every night at the same time yep, I mean, these yep. big elaborate meals she'd make breakfast in the morning i was like this is who she was and yet we had a resentment against her because she was so so strict so oh, we and very okay. very religious yeah and us kids were like kind of fighting her and sabotaging her oh. as often as we could <laughs> until i oh. realized my god this woman served us work for us yeah. and we were such horrible people uh. But I tried to make up for it at the towards the end of her life mm -hmm. once I realized that because she was really a good woman. Because I was gonna say, was that a special relationship? Sometimes I think with a grandmother, it can be someone who's a little softer and gentler than a parent. But it sounds like she no. was the one that kept everybody. <laughs> she was keeping it, that household in line. Absolutely, because my parents were like children. So mm. and then the children who had children, and so right, right. she was the adult. And right. uh, even though she was very strict, she did keep it all together. Right, she, and I have great gratitude, great love for for my grandmother. Yeah, yeah. And if you ask my siblings that, they would go. They would have a different different uh, point of view. Yes, I bet they would. And and that's also the thing about writing is it's the chance to put down our story and our perspective and our point of view on these things because everyone is going to have a little different slice of experience and seeing them all together and integrating them together we do find what is true I've I've been listening to so many podcasts and other conversations recently about what truth is and how you can have a version of a story and your sibling might have a very different version. That's right. And the thing is, neither one of you are wrong. Exactly. I mean, we just had a conversation the other day, my siblings and I, and I'm going, I didn't get that at all. I mean, mm -hmm. my sister says, we never talked about civil rights. I'm going, we talked about it all the time. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yes. But she's, she's like four years younger, so... I think she was not as privy as I was. Right. Because I was so engaged yep. with uh, 
what was going on in the world, even at a young age. I mean, I started mm-hmm. reading like at five or oh, four. Wow. Yep. I mean, I was a reader and I was like reading the newspaper at seven. Wow. And I was just engaged. Like, I want to know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. We have different interests and she might have been a little less tapped in at that point. Or yes. it, didn't, it just didn't raise to the level of what she was experiencing and what we remember and don't remember that's the other thing about when we write it's I find myself struggling with what I remember did you have things that you were trying to figure out what happened here or what was this gap or how you fill in those parts I don't think so really when you ask me I'm going like I don't really think so. Oh, good for you. <laughs> I'm so jealous. I'm jealous. I just kind of like, in my mind, this is what happened. Mm-hmm. This, this right. is how it came about. Yeah. And this is how I, I remember it. And I honor that. And I think, too, also, Michelle, being a hypnotherapist, and I hear so many people's stories. I was stories, wondering about that. Yeah. And I say, honor what comes up. Yeah. Honor the story that comes up. And they go, well, I don't know if this really happened. But honor whatever yeah. your mind is presenting to you. Honor it. Yeah. And let's break it down. Let's unpack it from there. Yeah. But honor whatever it is that comes up. So when you're honoring the you go to a situation, it's like uh, the way I remember it, I'm honoring what came up right. for me. Well, it's funny that you say that because I, as I've been working on my own writing, I try to do that a little bit I think okay well I don't remember what happened at this part of this story perhaps and then I will challenge myself to maybe just make something up and I will say to myself whatever you make up is going to be as close to what actually (laughs) might happen you know as if I imagine what could have happened And it's not anything, you know, if it was me alone in my room playing with my Barbie dolls or something like that, no one's going to even prove me wrong with (laughs) with what I did in my room when I was sent to, like, go think about this before, you know, I was going to get the spanking or whatever it was. And But what did I think about in that time? And I think that that's a good point to honor what comes up is... It's all in there somewhere, and it's trusting ourselves and accessing that memory. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Trusting ourselves and, and honoring, honoring that which, which appears. Yes. It is honoring ourselves. I like that a lot. I, I really do. That's so key in writing and in life because I think they're kind of the same. <laughs> yes, yes. So... Now that we have been set up, so this was in Los Angeles in the 1960s. Well, now we're in the 70s. In the 70s. So okay, like, right. when this is happening, it's in the 70s. Okay. And so would you like to read for us if you want to read the title of the chapter and then just begin? Okay. Let me try to breathe here. I'm, yep. And I'm reaching for a tissue in case my yeah. nose... Or I start crying. I'm a big crier. Me too. Especially when I read my own stuff. It's like, (laughs) I know. (laughs) I think it's funny the moments when we feel those tears spring into our eyes. It's like, okay, this is a moment. It must mean something to me if I'm getting so emotional about it. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. There's lots of healing, healing there. There's lots of recognition. There's something that is speaking to us, and that emotion is good. It's, it's very good. Yeah, yeah. It's very healing. Absolutely. 
and our tears are very healing. I tell my mm. my clients that all the time. These are healing tears. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Congratulations and best wishes. I needed to get away from my family's violence, far away, and everything dependent on a letter. My high school graduation was only a month away, yet I hadn't heard anything from the college I'd applied to. I rushed home from school each day, hoping to see a response I'd been waiting for and praying about. I was still flattered and excited that G wanted me all to himself, but my dates with him were only temporary escapes from my family's storms and the pressures of my senior year. I knew his jealousy was dangerous, so I tried not to provoke him, but another guy at school really liked me, and I liked him. We'd been flirting outrageously in class. He asked me out, and we drove around in his car through a part of town where no one we knew would see us. We listened to R&B, talking and laughing. He had a great sense of humor, and I loved our conversation, so different from those with G. We talked about student body politics and our classes, Yet he wasn't like the boys I thought of as squares, and his kisses were sweet. They were different from G's and almost as enjoyable. I felt that I had more freedom with him than I did with G, so I was my mother's daughter, committed to G while enjoying a clandestine relationship, the problem being that it was with a white guy. Blacks and whites, especially of opposite sexes, didn't mix together socially very often back then. We knew that we couldn't be together after high school. I must admit that I had kissed many boys in high school, and they were not my boyfriends. I just liked kissing boys. Yet I saw no future in remaining where I was, and my passport to a world that didn't include my family's chaos and two inappropriate boyfriends lay in this letter from Howard University in Washington, D.C. My grades were not exceptional, but surely my student body activities had put me in a good position. I had no idea how I would pay for the magnificent future it might offer. All I knew was that I wanted it. My hands trembled as I tore open the envelope. Please, God, I prayed. I am sorry to inform you that you have not been accepted. It read. No, I whispered. I couldn't breathe. How could this be true? A voice inside of my head said, Your high school counselors were right. You are not good enough. I felt as sick as when I stood before all those white counselors as they questioned me about taking college preparatory classes, advising me that those classes would be too much for me, their subtext being that I was not good enough. Feelings of guilt and shame flooded me. I sat down at the dining room table, weighed down and defeated. At least it wasn't a Friday night, so I didn't have to anticipate any drama from my parents. They were actually in their sane minds that evening, and they comforted me. In this kind of situation, they showed up for me, acting as adults and putting aside their unresolved feelings about themselves to express sympathy and to support me. Come on, girl, you can still go to college, Mom said. Just because it's not Howard is no reason to give up. The local colleges I hear are pretty good, and they're almost free. 
My father spoke quietly and firmly. No one can stop you from going to college. He had probably fought battles that I couldn't even imagine in order to finish college in the late 1940s when so few black people had the opportunity to finish high school, let alone hope for higher education. He'd enrolled after the war and had graduated in the midst of this country's most racist Jim Crow laws. It may not be your first choice, he continued, but you will go on to school. Believe that, girl. My father could certainly rise to the occasion. When he had the opportunity to pray aloud at church, for instance, he had a truly magnificent voice and delivered his prayers with an authority of one who pierced the heart of God. We were all momentarily uplifted after one of his prayers. I needed one of those prayers now, but I didn't ask for one. I would always wonder if it would have made a difference if I had. Too lost in my own pain, I couldn't absorb what my father was saying, mainly because I hadn't shared with either of them that my dream involved more than just going to Howard. It was about getting away from them. It was about finding my way in the world without dread, without the eternal clash of their, their titanic struggles. Even with all of their fighting, though, my parents ardently supported us in whatever we tried to do. They drove us to countless trips to the library, dance and drama recitals, even to charm school to learn how to be proper ladies. No matter how kind my parents' words were, I would have to learn to accept my rejection from Howard University, a bitter dose of reality I would keep spooning into myself for some time. Graduation came and I fought the blues all summer, but in the fall I started at a local community college and discovered that many of my high school friends had also enrolled there, prompting me to make the best of my situation. New friends asked me to join a sorority. Classes, study sessions, college activities, and hanging out with G all kept me away from home as much as possible. I felt bad for my younger brother and sisters stuck with our parents still doing their destructive dance. Then came the night of the broken glass, a personal crystal nut. It was Friday night. I heard a glass shattering and rushed into the living room. One of them had hurled some glasses. Deadly shards glittered everywhere. The younger kids were terrified and I was aghast. The fragile calm had, like the glass, turned lethal in its brokenness. Shocked, my parents stopped fighting. My father left the house and my mother cleaned up the glass. The fight was over, and they would go back to their normal-seeming lives, but I could not. That jagged glass had finally torn something inside of me. I slashed at my future. I didn't care about my plans anymore. I called G and asked him to pick me up. Let's get a room, I said. We'd never really had sex. He'd always wanted to, but I feared pregnancy and only went so far. On that night, I just didn't care. He brought some beer, and we found a cheap local motel. Walking into that room, I was keenly aware of the tawdriness, the smell of stale cigarette smoke and disinfectant. It wasn't romantic, and I feared a disease just from breathing the air. Above the bed, a mirror reflected us, and I laughed out loud at our eager young bodies. G joined in. 
Nervous, we drank beer and chatted, forestalling the inevitable. I was conflicted. The good southern girl popped up at my thoughts, whispering, Do you know what you're about to do? But G silenced her with steamy kisses. The last of our clothing melted away. Everything faded except the pleasures of skin on skin. Our bodies were used to each other, and we knew what we wanted. A sharp, brief pain intruded as I was entered for the first time. We writhed in our embrace, lost ourselves in the sensations, the soft slapping sounds of intimate contact, the panting and moans. He made the world go away, and I felt good. We lay there for a while afterwards trying to get used to this new feeling, and then we left. He drove me home and at the curb pulled me to his chest and kissed me. You know I love you, princess, he said sweetly, and let me go. I didn't feel guilty or shame, but I didn't feel very much like a princess either. In my bed, listening to my innocent sisters breathing in their sleep, I felt no sense of passage, no sense of a virgin becoming a knowing maiden, dancing in the moonlight with joy at the wonders of my body. I felt no thrill of being loved, of having that love physically penetrate my most secret place. And I especially had no clue about my fertility cycle and its rhythms. I just felt sort of numb. The next month, I missed my period. I made an appointment to see a doctor at Kaiser Hospital to verify what I already knew. He was a cold and distant white man, and I felt uncomfortable with him. He confirmed the truth. I was pregnant. I walked out of that doctor's office feeling a sense of shame and self-hatred wash over me. This was what my counselors expected stupid young black girls to do, I thought. Get pregnant by your boyfriend and then keep on having baby after baby with no future changes in sight. Where is the bridge? I wanted to jump. The panic started, and I didn't know how I would tell my mother. No one else mattered. The thought of her disappointment made my knees shake, and I thought I would pass out. I don't remember how I made it home, but I wished it were a Friday night. For once, their fights would have been a welcome distraction. Strangely, Mom was already home from work when I stepped into the house. That was unusual. My grandmother, who lived with us, said hello and Mom called me into her room. I was 18, a first-year college student, and pregnant. I was definitely not going to tell my mother today. She stood near her bed with her arms crossed over her chest. Is there anything you want to tell me? I started to feel nervous as I froze near the door. She couldn't possibly know my situation. Looking at her straight in the eye, I responded, no, I don't think so. Why? She just looked at me as if waiting for me to change my mind, but I looked away. Well, I just got a call from a doctor at Kaiser, and he tells me that you are pregnant. The floor slipped away from me as I held onto the doorknob to keep from falling. The doctor called you? In my shame and embarrassment, I tried diversion. I'm 18. Why did he call you? Girl, that is not the point here. You are pregnant. She almost shouted but controlled herself, probably to avoid letting my grandmother know what was going on. 
My chin dropped to my chest as I broke down in tears, all of the pressure and the sadness from the past few weeks, maybe even months, washed over me, and I wept. I am so sorry. I can't begin to tell you how sorry I am. You were supposed to be the smart one, she continued. I believed in you. You were going to do it better, better than me. Now she was also crying. We didn't make a move toward each other. I, I felt her pain, and I also felt that I was the worst daughter in the world. I never wanted to disappoint her. In spite of all of her faults, she was a good mother and also my dearest friend. In spite of her many battles, I always knew she would have my back. On that day, I was putting that faith to its ultimate test. Are you and G going to get married? Because you can't stay here and be pregnant. You're grown now. You need to get out and be on your own. Tears ran down her face as she grimaced with a struggle to control her emotions. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't want to get married. I want to finish school. Well, I guess you should have thought about that before you went and got yourself pregnant. She continued, I can't support you and your baby. How can you possibly think that? And you know how things are with me and your father? No, I will not have it. Whatever you decide to do, know this. You will not be living here pregnant. I understand. I do. I really do understand. I don't want to have a baby. I am so sorry. I shuffled out of the room. In terror of trusting myself to solve my own problems, I had turned to a very young man to rescue me. More than letting my mother down, I had let myself down, and my life would be changed forever. I sleepwalked through the next few days, trying to wrap my mind around the fact that I was carrying a child. She was excited and really wanted us to get married. Marriage was a door slamming in my face. I felt even younger than my 18 years. I was young. We were too young. And she was jealous all the time, not wanting me to spend time with my friends. He didn't really have friends or even like many people. I hated the thought of leaving school. I loved learning. G couldn't have cared less about education. Several days later, after I'd gotten the news, my mother called me into her room again. She was calmer. Look, if you don't want to have the baby, I know of a doctor who might be able to help you, she said, getting down to business. Help me do what? Have an abortion. The thought had not occurred to me. Of course, I knew about abortions. Some of my high school friends had had abortions. I knew that they weren't legal. I knew what a back alley abortion meant. But it would solve the problem. I was filled with sudden hope. I, I could wake up from this disaster like a bad dream that was gone with the morning light. Yes, I'd like to have an abortion. How soon? My mother looked at me wearily and sighed. Give me a few days and we will see. The appointment was scheduled. In one week, I'd be free to get on with my life and finish school. Maybe I could break up with G, start all over again. I was so excited. And then I started to doubt my decision. Since I was already pregnant, 
G and I were having sex every time we could. He pressured me to keep the baby and get married, insisting that we could find an apartment, get away from our parents, and be on our own. He had a terrible relationship with his parents. Would it be so bad? Could I really let go of this baby? My mother came and talked to me again before we left to meet with the doctor. You know how angry and disappointed I am with you, but don't let my anger make you do something that you might later regret. Her tone was genuine. We have a few hours before we leave, so I just want you to think about it. I was surprised. Do you mean if I decide to keep the baby, you would let me stay here? No, you cannot stay here. And if G still wants to get married, then that would be your other option. Think about it. She quietly left the room. I plunged into darkness again. Was this my fate? Was I supposed to have this baby, marry G, move out? I really didn't know what to do. My mind raced with doubt and panic built inside of me. I was still a practicing Catholic, and I, I remembered to pray. Just pray. Getting down on my knees, I intuitively turned to Mother Mary, begging her to give me an answer and to deliver me from this place of indecision and despair. The answer came, and I rejected it at first, but the feeling became stronger and still stronger. I sobbed and then sobbed some more. The answer remained unchanged, yet I still pushed it away. Quietness descended upon me acceptance. I would keep the baby and marry G, come what may. We began by planning a wedding. My mother worked hard to pull it all together in a narrow time frame. Some of my friends were already married or engaged. Believe me, I never envied them. Beautiful weddings and social acceptance were the bait that lured girls into the trap. We didn't seem to have a lot of options and no rights in this situation, but I was pregnant, and I had to find a way to make the best of it. A dear friend's mom was a dressmaker, and she would make my dress a white gown with a long train. My beautiful sister Alana and my friends would serve as my bridesmaids. They threw me a wedding shower, and I made an incredible dish from a menu of wedding shower recipes from a bridal magazine chicken a l'orange. My friend Peggy said, look at you getting all fancy. I didn't even know you knew how to cook. That made two of us. My grandmother had cooked for us all my life and I must have absorbed through osmosis her culinary skills. In my memory, the dish was perfect. I was getting all caught up in this wedding business. For a while, it was exciting being the bride-to-be, except for the two months of throwing up throughout the day. My wedding day. I stood before a mirror in my room. Thank goodness the nauseousness had abated. The baby's presence was beginning to show, so my dress had been altered a few times. I was a little nervous as I slipped it on, but it fit beautifully. My pregnancy concealed. Thrilled at what I saw in the mirror, I was smiling at my reflection, when I heard a familiar commotion. My stomach flip-flopped and I feared the return of my nauseousness as I rushed into the living room. 
My mother was beating on the floor with a mop and was about to charge at my father. Get out of the house! Get out! she yelled at him. Wait, you guys! Don't start this today, I pleaded. We have to be at the church in a little while. My mother set the mop down and started crying. I have been trying so hard to get this together for you. I want you to have a beautiful day. But your father, she looked at him, shaking her head with such sadness and disgust, tears streaming down her face. He is so drunk that I don't even know if he can walk you down the aisle. I'm sorry, honey. Immediately, I felt so bad for her and also guilty for causing the scene by getting pregnant in the first place. I looked over at my father, standing there in an apparent stupor. I haven't been drinking, he shouted. You don't know what you're talking about. My father was clearly drunk, and I wanted to take the mop to him myself. He knew he was wrong. He turned, saying he'd take a shower and get dressed. I heaved a long sigh as he left the room. Everyone was coming to the house after the church ceremony, and Mom wanted the house to look nice. Food and drinks had been ordered, and she was trying to put on the final touches. We stood there, staring at each other, not saying a word, mother and daughter recognizing somehow in that moment that I was walking in her footsteps, awaiting her same fate. Hot tears stung my eyes, but I blinked them away as mom dabbed at her own tears. She put the mop away as I finished getting ready for my big Catholic wedding at the church where I had taken my first communion only two years earlier. In the foyer of the church, my father was about to escort me down the aisle. He wasn't as drunk as he had been earlier, but neither was he sober. He stepped on the long train of my dress, leaving a big black shoe print, an image that followed me all day. My mom and dad put on their usual game faces, acting as if everything was fine. This time, I was relieved that facades had a place in my family. G looked debonair, and he appeared genuinely happy we were getting married. We made a beautiful couple. It was actually a lovely affair. The celebration continued at the house. Our guests complimented us on what a fine ceremony we had. Everyone drank the champagne, ate the little canopies, told jokes, laughed, and danced. Later, after the guests had left, I realized it was time for me to leave my mother's house. Out of nowhere, I began to cry quiet tears. Mom approached me and placed her hands on my shoulders. It is best, my dear. It is best, she said. Dry your tears and go with your husband. My father's black shoe print against the white train of my wedding gown, dragging behind me like a grim brand on what I dreamt of as a symbol of love, beauty, and hope. This image would always be a part of my wedding memory. It was as if fate announced, the patriarchy has claimed you, trailing you always. A flawed man you love, has given you to another flawed man you love. You have pledged before God to obey a man who has taken no such vow to you. Congratulations and best wishes. That's, there is so much there, Caroline. This is a really, I've, 
I really enjoy hearing this piece. There's what I, my little note that I made to myself is so much push and pull. There's just a lot of back and forth emotional, emotional weighing between your parents, between them together, between your parents and you, between you and G, of course, between you and yourself. Um, and you hint at trouble to come between you and G. <laughs> you hinted a lot of things, so I am oh very curious God. to read more chapters. <laughs> but <laughs> you were navigating so many different places. And through this, what what did you learn about you? I mean, there, and you might be able to answer that question probably better now, but do, did you know even then what you were learning about yourself through this whole really tumultuous time in your life? Ah, uh, I, there was, so, like you said, there were so many things going on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at that time, I think it was putting one foot in front of the other once the decision had been made to get married. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, had given up. Oh, this is, this is very hard. Mm-hmm. It's very emotional. I'd yeah. given up part of my dream. Mm-hmm. And here I was going to this thing. And I was really judging myself. And I talked about the white counselors, but I yeah. was really judging myself. Right. And uh, feeling not really good about myself, but making the best of the situation. And, and I had to. Mm-hmm. And I've read stories later of uh, women that got pregnant and their mothers said, well, let me support you. Let, let's do this right. together. But in my situation, and if you read the first two chapters, you'll know exactly why that was not going to fly. It was not mm. going to happen. It was too much going on. It was okay. so much going on. And the Friday night, yes. that's, which is so important because it was so consistently them fighting. I mean, really bad fights where I would take my father to the hospital because my mother hit him in the head with the, her high heel shoe. And uh, he'd be bleeding, and I was the designated driver taking him to the hospital, like at least once a month, and it was pretty tumultuous. Yeah, and she she was having an affair. Uh, Mm -hmm. She'd always had affairs, and my you know father graduating from college, but his alcoholism overtook him, and even though he had graduated, I had a college degree, he managed to mess you know sabotage it many times with his drinking so mm-hmm. so this was kind of the background and my grandmother being this the very strict religious person i mean we got up every sunday morning no matter what happened every sunday morning we were in church yep and then i converted to catholicism at 16 oh. because i wanted to find a quieter place or, or that's interesting okay yeah i was wondering because you said your grandmother was very strict religious but what yeah what religion did you go to church with them every Sunday? What the African American Episcopalian? It's called AME, the yep. uh, Episcopalian, mm-hmm. but it was an African centric Episcopalian. So right, and I love the music in the church. I loved it, but it was just it was just a lot of fire and brimstone kind of stuff. I just was too much for me. Yeah. So was it philosophically? You didn't like what they had to say. It's it terrified me. Yeah. It scared me. It was too it was too much of fire. Like if you do this, you're you're bad. If you do that, you're gonna go to hell. You're always mm-hmm. gonna go to hell. I'm going. I don't know. Yeah, I, I didn't even know anything other than that. But I just felt it. Just 
did something to my soul to hear that. Yeah. And so she was Catholic. My best friend was Catholic. So I started going to, to church with them. Oh. And I really liked it. Yeah. And then not only that, Michelle, but I thought, well, maybe I'll become Catholic. But I took the classes. I took catechism and wow. did all of that and met this incredible woman who gave me the instructions. And she talked about Mother Mary all the time. She's yeah. the one who introduced me to Mother Mary, this older white catholic woman mm -hmm. oh she was a beautiful soul beautiful wow. soul and she helped me and at 16 i made my first communion that's why at the same church two years later i'm getting married and i said like two years yeah. before i'd just been there with my first communion so ah okay so a lot of these little pieces are getting filled in because i was sort of wondering now i grew up in a like 90 percent catholic town I was raised in a very tiny, small religion called Christian Science. I think I told you a little yes, bit you about did. that. Yes, yes. And my mother adopted that religion as her own when she was a very young mother with a new baby that was really? made. Yes. Oh! So these are some of the reasons why I was very curious. So the fact that you said you... You changed from AME to Catholic when you were 16. I find that very interesting. And so tell me more about the Catholicism and what that did for you. What was that like? Well, it was just like I, and I believe, you know, in past life, something, it, it was just it resonated with me, the quietness, yeah. the incense, the, uh, mm -hmm. and at that time it was in Latin. Yeah. And it didn't matter. It was just so quiet and peaceful, and I love that. Mm -hmm. And then they changed over to English. But by that time, I left the church at 21 because I could not stand what the thing about women. And mm -hmm. and at that time, women's rights, liberation was coming up yes. more and more, and I couldn't bear it. And so I left. I only lasted like four or five years. Mm -hmm. I had my first daughter, the daughter I was pregnant with, the opening of the story, she was baptized Catholic, but she was the only one, mm -hmm. and that was it. But I left and then went on to other things. <laughs> I can understand a more intellectual reason to leave the church at that point, especially having joined it. You know, it wasn't like you were in that religion from your childhood and sort of a thing that you continued to accept. Was there anything that you missed about it, or what? What was the spiritual journey after that? Because it sounds like you, as you were saying, you were a seeker. You went on for other things. Well, the big part of my story also is that I took a lot of LSD. Oh. And I started taking wow. LSD when I was 21. Wow. And I took so many trips and I had so many experiences, Michelle. Uh -huh. And that's also part of the book. Yeah. It's like what happened on those trips and what, how it changed me profoundly. Wow. That's in the next chapters. After I was beaten pretty badly by G many times. Oh. And then it stopped after I started taking LSD. It's a whole story. It's a wow. interesting thing. Oh, Caroline. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it sounds very intense and like a, a lot. It, it was, but, you know, that was my journey. Yeah. And I honor her. Yeah. Each step of the way. Yeah. Because yeah. I never gave up. I love that. Yeah. And and I think that that is such a key part of many people's story is that we all have to find a way to keep going through yes. the things that we find ourselves in. 
and you sort of stumble this way and say that wasn't really working and <laughs> I'm gonna go in this other direction now but we do just keep going and and hopefully find ourselves in a better place eventually I'm yes I'm sort of the find ourselves to a better place hopeful person I guess that's part yes. of my personality but yes and and believe me my life changed incredibly I, I, I've had a incredibly successful life through changing my mind though from my old uh, mm -hmm. patterns that I'd inherited from my family and being born into the system I wasn't born into slavery but slavery mm -hmm. has certainly left its marks on each yes. of us as African Americans yep. and not even knowing we most people don't even know it I learned all of this later but right each thing brought me closer to my true self right each experience is like peeling the onion back, mm -hmm. Michelle. You know, more, more and more and more and more is revealed until you have this essence, this core. Yeah. And that's where I'm hopefully operating now from that place. You you make me cry, Michelle. I just want you to know that. Oh. <laughs> I, I want to say your own words back to you. The tears tell us we're near something precious. Or what did you say earlier? He healing, healing, healing tears. tears. Healing tears. Oh, gosh. Well, I don't want to make you cry, but I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I, okay. I, I feel the power of that, and, and, um, and your story just really speaks to that inner push to keep finding yourself. Yes. And those are the stories I really love about how we learn about us and how we unwrap that onion to undo all the other crap that can help us get back to something that was there all along but that we exactly. pile all this other protective stuff on top of exactly well as i've said the the things i love about this story you know i think the fact that it starts with such a huge disappointment in a rejection letter from the place that you had really been hoping for um, you know, to get into Howard, that doesn't work. And I don't know. I just, I love it when the things that we think are going to save us don't, and we still have to find our way through yes. the next steps. So there's so much complexity in your mom talking about how much she loves you and supports you yet can't have you there. You got some very good things from it sounds like both of your parents and you got some really difficult things from them too. And I think yes. that the stepping back, I don't know. I'm the one doing all the talking here, Caroline, but <laughs> I feel like the stepping back and trying to measure for ourselves, what, what's the stuff worth keeping and what's the stuff that is just so painful. I, you know, I have to write it out of me. I don't know. That's where I think the writing also plays a role. I, I don't know if any of that is was part of your experience or was what you were aiming at. Well, no, it, it was. And I think the painful experiences, as, as even sitting with my clients, it can transform us. That pain is transformative. That pain is the goal. That pain mm. is the, the gist for what we need for this uh, journey. I yeah. mean, that pain is, and that suffering is, is necessary because it does become transformative, or it can be. 
Yes. If you stay in the pain, you will drown in it, but it can transform you. You will rise in it, in the pain. And it's it, it's something that is absolutely necessary for the journey. It's not to be thrown away. It is to be transformed. And it can yeah. be. It's so it paradoxical, but... Yes, it is. You're right. As life is, isn't it? Yeah. It's paradoxical. Yeah. We're always on this kind of line, this it's one way or the other. And it's paradox but holding to it's not holding to the pain, it's honoring the pain. Mm -hmm. As I tell my clients, like like you said, you got something good from your mother and, and your father, and you got something that wasn't so good. And that's what all of us it's and I say we don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. We keep mm -hmm. what's good and we release that. We can let go of that which we know no longer serves us or supports us in the life that we're willing to live today. Mm -hmm. So it's okay to take all of that stuff and know how it works for us and then we can release it, let it go, right. and keep going on. But if we don't first observe it or... Um, acknowledge it. Acknowledge it, yeah, to just push it away, you're not going to get that transformative lesson, I, I think. Absolutely. No, you're not. Yeah. No. You have to first be aware. You have to know. To, and the awareness. And most people aren't even aware. They're just aware of the pain. But the pain mm -hmm. is offering. A, it's a, the pain is a teacher. It is a teacher. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I have another question or two about your mom. The scene where before you were about to go to the doctor's appointment that she volunteered it for you. She set this up for you to go get an abortion and help you try and deal with this situation in a way that you wanted to deal with. It didn't seem like she forced you. She offered it and you were interested. But then as you're about to go, she asks you again, think about this. Is this something you might regret and I'm very touched by this sort of removal of her emotion from what she offers as your opportunity and your decision and knowing that the decision is your responsibility and what what does that say about her or how, how was she able to be so wise? I guess. I, I don't know. Do you know what I'm well, saying? No, yeah. Yes, I do. Because I've thought about that and, and reading it again, I'm going, how did she? And what came to me is that my mother had had an abortion and she'd regret it. Uh, yeah. And that she didn't think that she thought, and this wasn't going to be her first grandchild. Was not going she, to be her first grandchild. This was, was no. This was this oh. was going to be her first grandchild. Yeah. And I think she um, she had had an abortion. I'm I'm sure of it. Mm. And uh, had regretted it, and thought that I might do the same. Mm. Right. So you feel like she was offering you a chance she didn't get. Right. And then mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't know any of this, you know, mm -hmm. but she was, and I think, I mean, how did she know about yeah, a doctor? Right. I mean, how does she know how to do That's this? Right. 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 And, exactly. uh, and, and, and it came up so qu easily. It wasn't mm -hmm. like it was it, because something had happened to her also. Mm -hmm. 
right, right. The other question I had is about her observation or did she have an opinion when you decided to leave the AME church and become Catholic? That's also in a previous chapter. Yes, she told me as long as uh, Jesus was involved, she didn't care. She gave my her blessings. So that was not, and my yeah. so your big Catholic did, wedding you know, was not controversial in any way. Yeah. No, okay. no. You know what, Michelle? I never thought about it. I just we, I was going to get married at the Catholic Church because he was Catholic mm-hmm. and I was already Catholic, right. and so it was going to be the Catholic wedding, and nobody. I, I can't remember yeah. that. I mean, I was in such turmoil. Well, yes, there's you know, enough to be worried yeah. about in this situation. <laughs> I suppose yes, yes. that was the least of anybody's concerns, right? Like a church. Great. Yes, please. Go get married. Yeah. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. So all all of the things that are not, everything comes in the previous two chapters, and then there's so much more that goes right, in afterwards, right. after, they, after the marriage. That's when it really starts. Yes, okay. Well, I can't wait to hear who's going to get to publish this book because I will be the first one signing up for a copy. <laughs> <laughs> we have to find a yeah, publisher. Yeah. You know, even if I self yep. I don't know. We'll see what There's happens. There's a lot of options these days, I have to say. Yes. I think that that's yes. an interesting time. Yes, yes. So I don't know how it's going to come about. But I've had, uh, I'll tell you this since you and I are talking, Mm -hmm. but I had a dream because in hypnosis, I always take people down the staircase, you Mm -hmm. know, go deeper and deeper into relaxation. And you probably heard about, I mean, you go down a staircase and that's going into your subconscious mind, right? So I had a dream where I was walking down the stairs, which I recognized, well, I'm in my subconscious, I'm walking down the stairs. At the end of the stairs, there's a bench and there's a woman sitting on the bench and it's Maya Angelou. And Maya Angelou says to me, and she's holding a book in her mm-hmm. hands, and she's reading, and she goes, you have a really good book. I think people are really going to enjoy reading your book. I approve of your book. And I'm going, Maya Angelou? Wow. And then I woke up. <laughs> I love that. Isn't that interesting? Yes. I mean, I have dreams all the time, but it was Maya Angelou. I, I mean, wow. Maya Angelou? Yes. Reading my I book? Know. I'm going, I know... I'm calling on the gods to help right. me, but it's Maya Angelou. Hey, so somewhere in my subconscious, Michelle, yes. I know this book is going to get out there. I so love that. I have the stamp That's of approval right. from Maya Angelou. <laughs> I love that, Caroline. That is great. <laughs> yeah, so... All right. Well, it has been such a pleasure getting to know you and our time talking together. So thank you so much. Yes, Michelle. I hope our paths cross again. I really, really appreciate your heart, your beautiful heart. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you know what question I didn't ask you? What? I was so consumed by everything else. What was the most daring thing about writing this? Uh, The most daring thing? Just uh, (laughs) writing it? (laughs) Putting it out there? Are you kidding? I have a fa- I have a line of family members who I'm going. I hope they don't they don't read this. I hope they're not interested. <laughs> it's really for the grandchildren. Yes, I know. <laughs> so no daring to write it, daring to, you know, uh, the secrets, how people. But it's my story, and you know, yeah, it's like it's too late, too bad. It's my story. 
Oh, it, it's so much stuff that goes on, my dear. I know. Well, you know what? Those are, that book. hits the nail on the head. And I that's why I really came up with the podcast is because it is daring to even think about writing it down. And But when we finally Absolutely. do claim our stories, it's my story. I hope these people don't read it. But you know what? For everyone else, <laughs> I hope they do. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Of course. All right. Well, I will say thank you. All right, Michelle. Well, I have got a list here of so many notes of all the things that I didn't follow up with Caroline about that I wish I still had the chance to talk with her. I could have kept talking with her for quite some time, but alas, we had other things to do. But um, that was just a really enjoyable conversation. I think... um, of all the things that she said, uh, what moves and moved me the most was about the healing tears and to honor what comes up when those tears happen. Um, gosh, I really, I kind of hate making people cry. <laughs> it seems to be a, uh, a theme on this podcast and with the with the writers who I speak with, but it's... It's the healing tears um, that makes the pain worthwhile, that makes the pain transformative. And Caroline was able to put so many words to that so beautifully. And I really hope she finds a super fantastic publisher for this book. I think I might die without you. Next month, I am very excited to let you know I have another fantastic conversation with Fook Tran, who will read from his award-winning book called Saigon. That's S-I-G-H-G-O-N-E, a misfits memoir of great books, punk rock, and the fight to fit in. It is a brilliant book, and if you have not yet read it, well you have a treat headed your way you can hear him read a chapter i loved our conversation if you liked this episode i hope you will share it with a friend or two maybe let folks in a book group that you're in know about it or maybe you have a writing class or group please do share it you can follow me on twitter at michelle rado and i have also neglected to let you know that i have a newsletter that i send out in conjunction with this podcast so it only comes out about once a month it will not clog up your inbox it is called hit pause which is what i do so frequently when i am listening to these conversations with these writers that i have the honor of speaking with. Uh, you can sign up for Hit Pause, my newsletter, at my website, michellerado.com. And until next time, thank you for daring to listen. I keep climbing the mountains, reaching for the boundless spaces. I keep watching my back on my left and my right. And nothing's gonna make me brave Nothing's gonna make me brave Nothing's gonna make me brave Except doing what makes me scared And nothing's gonna break my fall 
there's nothing in the protocol It's like swimming up waterfall Or taking away the ground Taking away the ground It's like taking away the ground 